session. Yeah. Quickly. So the, the PowerPoint uh, yeah. is going to be for 30 minutes long. Uh, Dr. Ratner is going to. There's going to be no questions. Dr. Ratner is just going to go straight through and talk about. Okay. The, Give a little stuff. lecture and then then we'll yeah. we'll do some talking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so. Okay, perfect. That's how we'll run it then. Good. All right, we'll be up and running in just a few moments. I'll give you a cue when we're, when we're ready to go live. Oh, yeah, I'll take care of that in just a few seconds. Check, 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 check. One, two, three, four. In the beginning, there was not one universe, but many. With many worlds almost exactly like Earth. Here to report on those many worlds is the Multiversal News with Greg Leinweber. Hello everyone. Uh, this is Greg Leinweber. And uh, I have a special treat for you today. I've got Dr. Buddy Ratner. And if you don't know who he is, then uh, pay attention because you're going to be glad to hear the information that we're getting. There is soon going to be a bioengineering revolution in this country, and it's already starting to happen thanks to uh, some of the great scientists that are pushing this. And uh, on this show today, I have one of the finest examples of, of such a man in this case. Uh, Dr. Buddy Ratner will be giving us a uh, 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 PowerPoint uh, 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 explanation of tissue engineering. 
And uh, without further ado, I do not want to waste any more time with a flowery introduction. Let's just get right to it. Dr. Buddy Ratner, would you like to go ahead and tell us yeah, what's happening? Yeah, sure, Greg. Uh, thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Great to be on the show. And um, I think what we're doing is really exciting. I think it's going to be uh, what we call transformational. It's going to change the face of medicine. And I, I just put a few slides together to, to help explain it, and then we can talk a bit about it. So if we could get those slides going, that'd be great. There we go. So I, I called the, the little talk, uh, Tissue Engineering Replacement Parts for the 21st Century. And indeed, I think we will someday be able to replace all or most parts of the human body. So we have the first slide there. Yeah, thanks. Um, so wh what I got here, medicine and physicians. Uh, keeping us healthy, keeping us functional. One, one picture is, is a, an old Norman Rockwell painting of kind of your good old country doc. And the, uh, the other uh, is uh, Bones from uh, Star Trek uh, uh, talking about medicine of the future. But uh, through, through all of history, uh, it's interesting what these, these physicians have done. If we go to the next slide, got a big word there, palliative, palliative. Through all the history, the focus of medicine has been on this and uh, got um, uh, sort of a uh, definition of this word. It's, it's medical treatment for reducing the severity of disease symptoms rather than striving to halt, delay, or uh, reverse the progression of disease itself or provide a cure. It's just uh, basically making the patient, uh, ma making the, the uh, patient comfortable uh, so they can go on and function in their in their lives, and nothing wrong with that. Of course, we've been doing that in medicine, uh, as I say, since roughly 150 A.D. Many people say Galen is the first physician. Uh, Describes some of the the earliest ideas of how a physician uh, deals with disease, interacts, and since that time, palliative has been the uh, hallmark. Now let's go on to the next slide. Thanks. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we, we can look at, again, I, I say through all, all of history, go, go back even to ancient Egypt. What, what that is is a wooden toe that they found in a mummy, uh, Egyptian mummy. Dating back 3,000 years ago, uh, somebody was thinking uh, that uh, this person um, uh, without that toe would, would not be terribly functional. It's hard to walk, actually, without your big toe. And they put this replacement in. So people have been thinking about this this sort of thing for a very long time. Uh, next slide. But uh, that that was 3,000 years ago, and, and now we're, we're today. And uh, you know, now we, we have the average life expectancy uh, in the U.S. is about 78 years. And, and when you think of it, we were evolution designed us to last just long enough to pass on our genomic material to the next generation, to pass on our, our genes, and, and then maybe the saber-toothed tiger could come along and eat you up or something. But uh, you weren't important once, once we um, uh, passed on that material. And, and so we were engineered to last till about we're 30. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, we, thanks to advances in medicine, we're lasting to 78. But in the process, we sort of wear out uh, disease uh, heart disease is sort of illustrated there. Uh, parts wear out. What I have a picture of in the middle there is, is a hip, hip joint, hip replacement. And the natural hip 
just rubs so many times, just like any mechanical device, and wears out in all those years. And then uh, also uh, the, the last box has uh, uh, trauma, the, uh, the panel all the way to the right. And uh, uh, we deal with automobile accidents. We deal with, uh, with wars in, in, in foreign lands that uh, lead to some, some uh, getting us pretty well ripped up. So uh, next slide, thanks. Um, this one shows, I, I call it compelling needs, and it's, it's kind of interesting. It, it really talks to those, those wars, but what I have there is the percent of injured soldiers saved. How many, once you're injured in a war, how many come home? In the Civil War, 19% came home, 81% uh, uh, died from their injuries. Uh, and then we go down that list, things get better and better by the time we reach the I Iraq uh, uh, conflict. 96% of our soldiers are coming home. That's pretty impressive, but bigger question is what condition are they in? How badly have, th have they been uh, damaged and what will be the quality of their life uh, when they have to go on with uh, a very um, uh, uh, rudimentary replacement parts uh, for the things that would damage in the war? So that, that's kind of the situation. Next slide. Uh, and uh, this also uh, sort of talks to, um, again, the change in situation. People are li living longer. And furthermore, people want to, to be young, to act young. I have on the bottom there some um, ever-popular baby boomers, and they do look young and act young for their age, but they're all entering the, the baby boomer generation. They're all over uh, 64 or so. So um, uh, in 2005, there were already 78 million people in this baby boomer generation, and we're getting um, uh, many more each day. And uh, the, the number of Americans uh, that are 65 plus will more than double by 2030. What needs we will have to keep these people, not, not just to keep them alive, but to keep them healthy and active and, frankly, young looking. So let's go on to the next slide here. Okay, so what, what are the problems with aging? Uh, heart disease, cancer, joint problems, vision loss, hearing loss, diabetes, incontinence. Th there's this wonderful old Czech expression which says if you're over 60 and you wake up one morning and nothing hurts, you're probably dead. So we do kind of wear out. Okay, next slide. Uh, and, and most of the diseases of aging are associated with wearing out or malfunction of a tissue or an organ, so hey, organ wears out, let's, let's just replace the defective part. Let's see how we might do that, the next slide. So, so what are the options for body repair, replacement? Well, uh, there are what I call biomaterials and medical devices. We have metallic hips, we have pacemakers, we have heart valves, we have uh, intraocular lenses, eye lenses, eye len clear eye lenses that are implanted in the body. Uh, knee joints, um, uh, just a whole range of things that we put into the body to, uh, to replace or augment the part that's gone bad. And those are kind of neat, but there are some problems with them too. Um, that they're uh, uh, basically, although they meet a criterion we call biocompatible, uh, basically the body looks at them and says this is uh, still kind of foreign. We'll actually talk about that in a little while and doesn't respond to them that well. They don't grow with the patient, they don't fight infection, they don't communicate with the body, they just kind of inert things that sit in there. So yes, they work, yes, a hip joint will take a person who um, 
uh, basically confined to a wheelchair and, and suddenly they're up and dancing in a short amount of time but uh, there are going to be some problems too and we'll, we'll talk about those problems I have, I have some slides coming up on that uh, another option is transplantation hey let's get a, a part from somebody else and transplant it a new heart uh, new lungs uh, new kidneys uh, the problem is if you look down on the bottom there, I talk about a waiting list of candidates for transplants. There's a website that tells you how many people are waiting for transplants. And as of yesterday, it was well over 100,000 people are sitting there waiting for a transplanted part to come along. You need somebody to donate the part. Usually somebody has died to donate the part. And uh, so we maybe do 10, 12,000 of them a year, and yet there's 100,000 people waiting for transplants. So that's obviously not going to meet our needs. Uh, how about a, a, a life with altered functionality? Some people, something goes wrong, some people would find maybe a wheelchair is satisfactory, maybe being able to do less or move less. It's okay for some people, but most people it's not. And then finally, uh, at the bottom, we have uh, two things, two words, tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. And we'll kind of define those. Go to the next slide, and I think they're probably highlighted there, tissue engineering, regenerative medicine. Are, are the main subjects of this talk, and let, let's go on to the next slide now. Yeah, so here, here's some definitions, uh, tissue engineering. We're going to grow tissues and organs in the laboratory and then transplant them back into the patient, often with their own cells, but sometimes with cells from other humans. Uh, and, and that's tissue engineering, and then and that's happening right now, as you'll see. We're doing that right now. More in the future is the idea of re regenerative medicine, and here we're going to provide a, an environment, an appropriate stimulation, so literally the patient can grow their own. Can you, uh, certainly uh, every amphibian, or many amphibians, can regrow a tail or a limb. Uh, w what if we could do such a thing too, if we could regrow a limb, or regrow a kidney, or regrow uh, uh, parts of your heart? This is uh, a vision for the future, and, and that's where we're going. We're not quite there yet for regenerative medicine, but that will be uh, phenomenal in the future. Now let's go on to the next slide. So th this is uh, interesting. How long have people been thinking about doing this? This is a book that came out in 1938, and the authors are kind of called The Culture of Organs. The authors are Alexis Carell. He won the Nobel Prize in Medicine, I think in the 1920s. And he's working with Charles Lindbergh, the aviator. But Lindbergh was also an engineer. And these two put together a very visionary book where they imagined how one could culture, keep alive, and grow potentially organs outside the body in bioreactors, in uh, uh, sterile uh, systems that provided nutrients and oxygen and allowed them to grow organs. So uh, now they, they couldn't really do it. The biology of the time wasn't quite up to it. But they, they showed some potential. They did some experiments, and it was an incredibly prescient uh, piece of a piece of uh, literature, credi incredible book uh, for its time. And next slide. Yeah. So uh, coming from that uh, time, now now we have uh, medical devices, and they're made out of metal and plastics, and and just some examples up there. There's a heart uh, a heart artery stent, a coronary stent. These are going into 2.5 million humans every year. Uh, and uh, so if uh, your coronary arteries are getting clogged, one of the main things that kills us, terminates our lives, a doctor might go in, kind of roto-root it, clear it out. 
and put in uh, uh, almost a little piece of chicken wire to hold that uh, artery open so it doesn't spasm closed. And uh, that works so well, it's, it's going to millions of people. Uh, we also have a picture of a, of a breast implant. We're putting in about 400,000 a year of breast implants into humans. Uh, um, about 25% are for mastectomy reconstruction. But the other part, of course, people are concerned about their appearance. Women, of course, are concerned about their appearance and uh, feel this would enhance their, their uh, self-esteem. And thus, there's a market for it. Uh, we also have a heart valve. Now, there's a, a life-saving device. If your heart valve fails, you're uh, not going to do well. And, and now we can replace it with plastic or metal. Have a hip joint there, have catheters. And then there's this intraocular lens, the uh, clear lens that takes the cataractus, the cloudy natural lens, just pops it out of your eye. And those are going into, um, in, into 14 million people per year. So uh, it's pretty good, pretty good record. We're doing it year after year. They must kind of work. But let's let's go to the next slide. So um, yes, they kind of work, but uh, there are problems with all these devices. And, and I discussed just two of them. I could take any one of those devices and discuss what the issues are and their real concerns and real places where people want to make them better. But uh, on on the left-hand panel on this screen, I, I talk about a condition called tetralogy of Fallot certain number of babies, a fraction of babies, are born with this. It's a defect uh, or, or a, a, a congenital defect in, in the cardiovascular tree. And um, what the doctors do is replumb the babies. The babies live. They replumb them with, with Gore-Tex blood vessels, uh, much like what's in a rain, rainproof jacket. Uh, and uh, it's fine, except the baby grows and the part doesn't grow. And the baby has to go in for surgery a few times as they grow to adulthood to get bigger and bigger plumbing put in. And that's uh, not good. So it's a great success in medicine. It doesn't quite work. Can we go back to that slide one more time? Yeah, thank you. And then uh, to on the right-hand panel, we talk about the hip joint. Uh, again, we have uh, oh, pretty much a million people a year getting, getting metal and plastic joints like that. But you see that ball coming over the head of the femur, the head of the big bone in the leg, and it goes into a cup that sits in your pelvis. And uh, that does a pretty good job of, of, of emulating the normal functionality of the hip, except you've got a metal ball rolling, rubbing in a plastic cup. And what do you think you get? You get wear debris. And that wear debris uh, leads to a reaction that leads to loosening of the device. So yes, these are great devices. They're, they're incredible. but uh, the patient uh, will have to live with a lot of severe compromises that just don't happen with the natural part. Let's, let's go on to the next slide. Yeah, so what this is, it's a microscopic image of, of what happens to all these synthetic materials, these parts that we implant in the body. And, and off to the right side in this image, we have a, a, a Teflon glucose sensor. And uh, it'd be great if a person with diabetes could have a glucose sensor in their body, no more finger sticks, and an accurate reading all the time of their glucose levels. It'd be great. But wh what does the body do? To, if you look in the middle, but, uh, l first look to the left. That's what normal tissue looks like uh, in this image. Then you look in the middle, and what the body does is take that Teflon device and put a, a wall, a collagen wall. It's a tough, fibrous wall. The body says, well, uh, 
maybe it's very impressed with the engineering that went into that Teflon glucose sensor, but still it's a foreign object, and the body evolution says what we do with foreign objects is wall them off. So it walls them off, and the thing can no longer sense the glucose. So it'd be great. We could do this. We know how to make very good glucose sensors, but they don't function in the body. Uh, that's because we're not working with the normal healing and reconstructive mechanisms of the body. We're putting in foreign materials. Yes, they're biocompatible. Yes, they do save lives. They improve the quality of life. But uh, the body still views them as foreign. Let's, let's go on to the next slide. So what we're trying to do here, um, our program, it's called UWeb, University of Washington Engineered Biomaterials. And it was originally funded by the National Science Foundation with this goal in mind. Uh, the biomaterials today, that blue thing, maybe an implanted biomaterial, a medical device, the body puts a wall around it, isolates it, and it hit the next thing, yeah. So what we're trying to do is take that biomaterial and have it integrate, incorporate, have the body say, ah, I recognize you, let's reconstruct around it so it'll function within the body. And we call those biomaterials that heal. And um, next slide here. Yeah, so there it is, biomaterials that heal. And that's, uh, that's what we're aiming for right now. So next slide. So this is a picture of one of the biomaterials that heal that we invented. A and I have kind of a, a pinkish uh, circle there off to the left. And that shows what the diameter of a human hair would look like relative to that porous structure. The blue thing uh, I is a bunch of pores, a porous structure. And I have uh, a graph, a plot there. And what's on the y-axis, the axis going up towards the, the top of the screen, is number of blood vessels. Blood vessels are good. Blood vessels mean healing. And on the bottom, on the, on the x-axis, we have the size of those pores, those little cups. If the cups are just about right, just about 35, 40 microns, we get this vascularized, integrated healing. If the pores are too small, too big, uh, we get the, the body just, just walls off the material. So we sort of found a, a very interesting way to get things to heal and integrate into the body. And we're using this in a lot of different medical devices. In fact, we go to the next slide. Uh, yeah, so anyway, we call these uh, 6S biomaterials that heal. Uh, the more technical name would be a sphere-templated porous scaffold. And uh, let's go on to the next slide. So these materials heal. They heal uh, under the skin. They heal through the skin. We can now introduce things into the body without getting an infection. They heal in muscle. They heal in heart. They heal in the sclera, the white of the eye. We're working on uh, uh, glaucoma drains and glucose uh, and uh, uh, cornea replacement with these. They heal in bone. And we're working with a gynecological surgeon who showed they even heal in the vaginal wall. And there are a number of instances where this surgeon needs to repair uh, weakened, damaged vaginal walls. And he's very excited about this type of material. Uh, next slide. So. Uh, these are kind of ideas in biomaterials and medical devices, what we're doing today. And that 6S or porous material or scaffold, you saw, is what we're doing today. But let, let's take some of these ideas now to the newer field of tissue engineering. And next slide. 
So this uh, slide shows what people are attempting to uh, regrow, not just uh, use synthetics to replace, but regrow. And it, it's pretty much everything from the, uh, the, the toes on, on, on your feet uh, right up to the hair on the top of your head. And in fact, hair is a big one uh, because uh, many people are willing to pay substantial money for um, uh, cosmetic uh, enhancements. So there are a number of companies out there that try to tissue engineer hair using your own cells and uh, develop hair that you can put back into your head. It's a kind of exciting area, but more important things would be things like heart muscle and blood vessels and liver and kidney and bladder and uh, uh, teeth and gums, all, all sorts of uh, uh, maybe more critical parts than hair. Uh, let's go on to the next slide. So how, how does tissue, how do we do it? Uh, how does it work? Well, if you start at the left, we start with this porous scaffold, usually made of some sort of synthetic material, and we seed it with cells. I'm showing there bone cells. So we literally, in, in a cell culture dish, we, we take bone cells that we might grow up from, isolate from bone, grow them up in a dish, seed them onto the surface, and we put that material into a bioreactor. We flow through nutrients, we flow oxygen in there, keep it well stirred, and uh, what we'd like to see is maybe at the end, all the way to the right, we've grown a piece of bone. That's the basic idea. Uh, that, of course, is a PowerPoint cartoon. It's a lot easier to do in PowerPoint than it is in real life. But if we go to the next slide, well, this is a uh, front page of the Washington Post. And what they're showing there is a bladder that has been completely regrown in the lab from the patient's own cells. The patient is a, a child who had a congenitally defective bladder, and as you'd imagine, that could make for a very unpleasant quality of life for this young person. The uh, scientist who did this, the medical doctor, is Anthony Atala, and Dr. Atala took a porous scaffold took the cells from this patient, seeded them on the scaffold, grew them up in a bioreactor, and planted them back in the patient. The boy has been alive nine, ten years and has a bladder in him that has been completely grown in the laboratory. There are at least 20 people that have had this particular procedure. There's a company now formed to try and bring this to everybody. You don't need the bladder. Bladder is not an essential organ to be alive, but the quality of life, if you don't have a bladder, is poor. And uh, this could have a great medical impact in, in making life better for uh, hundreds of thousands of people. So it's an incredible innovation. Let's go to the next slide. Here's another one. Here's a, a, a trachea, windpipe. Um, and scientists in Spain have, um, again, seeded the patient's own cells onto a scaffold, grew up a windpipe, and put it back in. Now, windpipe, you might think a trachea, windpipe, seems like a tube. Let's just put a plastic tube in there. doesn't work. It scars closed. Nobody's ever been able to do it. Uh, pretty much uh, ends any quality of life you might have if your windpipe goes bad. And here they're growing a living one. It's uh, lasted um, at least many, many months, maybe years in these patients. And so, again, another sort of miracle of medicine. Uh, next slide. So we have uh, two examples there, uh, our own program, which is funded by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the NIH, says um, uh, if we get a heart attack, a portion of the heart muscle dies. It uh, dies, and, and we have no ability to reheal that. 
Um, we might live through the heart attack, but that will set us on a downhill spiral to uh, probably uh, resulting in congenitive congeni uh, uh, heart disease and um, um, congestive heart failure is what it's called, congestive heart failure. And um, the, uh, the consequence of that congestive heart failure is that uh, you will probably uh, end your uh, years on this earthly orb uh, going downhill steadily until your heart can no longer pump the blood. And what we're saying is maybe we can, using some new technology, um, we can actually, right after that heart attack, replace that dead or dying portion of the heart with uh, um, living heart muscle. And what we have to do, now first of all, we have to, the cells, the muscle cells in the heart, they're called cardiomyocytes, and these cells have no regenerative capacity. They don't multiply. Uh, so where, where do they come from? You can't spare any to fix a, a wound in your heart. Uh, so we have to get those cells. And at first we were getting them from human embryonic stem cells. Of course, every uh, embryo, every baby uh, makes a heart. It's not a problem for a baby. And so these cells have the capacity to make the heart. Our adult cells don't, but, but those cells do. Uh, now there's even a better alternative. Uh, it's called induced pluripotent stem cells, and basically we can take things like skin cells, make them revert back to the primitive form, stem cells, and stem cells can make any cell in the body, and then we can uh, differentiate those, change those stem cells, force them to go down a pathway to heart cells. So now we think we can get buckets of heart cells, and what we're working with is with that porous material, that scaffold, and developing an idea for introducing those heart cells into the wall of a damaged heart, you just had a heart attack, and giving you fresh new muscle that you can't grow yourself. If we can actually heal that uh, infarct, that uh, damaged spot in the heart, uh, this uh, will be revolutionary in medicine. So the, the program we call BEAT, it's a 10-year NIH-funded program to rebuild injured heart muscle, and it is happening right now at the University of Washington between the School of Medicine and the, uh, the Department of Bioengineering. Let's go on to the next slide. Yeah, so here, here's the BEAT strategy. Again, uh, a porous scaffold on the left. We might have to put on one or more different types of cells into that scaffold. We develop them in a bioreactor. We uh, then incorporate them. What happens has to happen is these uh, cells need oxygen. So blood vessels have to be rapidly introduced, and nerves have to be introduced so they communicate with the rest of the heart. And then finally they fuse and integrate, and we have a functioning heart. That's our strategy, and this is, is in the process right now, and we're very excited about the progress on this. We think we can actually make an impact on heart disease, which is the number one killer by far in the United States and the developed countries of the world. Uh, next slide. So, kind of pulling to the end here, and we can talk some more about all these things. But uh, it's interesting how we're getting sort of dramatic increases in life expectancy. If you look at that curve as a function of time, it's going up and up and up. We're living longer and longer. But uh, next slide. What we really want to do is we want to live, we want to be healthy, we want to be vital, we want a good quality of life, we want to go out and dance, we want to have nice dinners go see good shows, we don't want to be bedridden. And so we have to um, develop 
uh, new methods that uh, can not only keep us alive, but can keep us uh, good quality. And next slide. So this uh, kind of illustrates the whole thing. These uh, two ladies are saying, I, I never thought turning 80 would be so much fun. And uh, indeed, they probably are having uh, a good quality of life. So uh, I think that illustrates what, what we would like to do in tissue engineering uh, and, and a regenerative medicine. And, and next slide. I think this just finishes it off. Yeah, so uh, this just acknowledges uh, many students staff at the university, my colleagues at the University of Washington contributed to a lot of the things you saw there and then funding from the National Institutes of Health and from uh, the UF program was funded by the National Science Foundation and really really started this whole idea of how we can change palliative medicine just making the patient comfortable and um, uh, actually going to cure to replace to repair permanently so that's that's the end of this presentation Wow. Okay, that answers a lot of my questions, and as I thought it would, raised a bunch, too. Uh, my very first question, getting back to uh, regenerating the heart tissue, is uh, how do you tell certain cells to say, okay, you become nerves, you become lymph nodes, and that you guys form a blood vessel over here. Uh, do you have to kind of coax them into it or something? Uh, what's yeah, the, yeah what's that's... The process? Um, quite a good question. It, it, it's a very lively uh, theme to do, to do that these days. So again, we're starting with this one kind of cell. We call it a, a stem cell. And it's yeah. the beginning cell. And uh, a lot of the work to date has been done with, with uh, uh, chemicals, proteins called cytokines. It's actually, they're, they're um, used by the body to, to signal and direct uh, cells. And we've learned how to, uh, uh, how to isolate them, how to produce them how to use them in a cell culture dish. So we had a, a certain cocktail of cytokines that's been developed by my colleagues in the university at South Lake Union. Uh, they've developed a, a cocktail of uh, these cytokine proteins, and in, in the cell culture dish, if these embryonic stem cells are exposed to them, uh, we can make them go towards the heart. Other people are taking other cytokines and making them go to nerve. Other people are taking other cytokines and having them go towards bone. But, but there have been some interesting things that have happened. People, uh, for example, there was uh, there's one group in the uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania made a very important discovery that these cells grow on, grow on a surface. And if the surface is very soft, the cells will go to, um, to nerve. Uh, brain and nerve are very soft tissues. If the surface is kind of a medium hardness, the cells will go to muscle. And if the surface is very hard, the cells will go to bone. The cells are getting a mechanical clue from the outside world about what type of environment they might be in. And that clue is, is forcing them by mechanisms we still don't entirely understand to differentiate to the right, right cell type. Now, that's very interesting. So you can sort of uh, purposely uh, deal with the uh, surface to try to herd the cells along, kind of like a a cowboy herding cows and jackrabbits and dogs into certain directions to form different little layers and groups and to individualize areas to create the blood vessels in the right place and that sort of thing yeah, inside the tissue. Yeah, that's, that's kind of right. You know, as you mentioned that, it's, it's, it's interesting that if you mix two different cells, you know, uh, tissues or organs are made of many, they're not made of one type of cell, they're made yeah. of many different types of cells. And, and if you take the cells, for example, that, that um, oh, um, 
give an example. Take skin, for example. Take the cells on the outside. We, we call it the epidermis, the outer layer of skins. Skin, they're, they're called keratinocytes. Take those and take the inner layer, which are cells called fibroblasts. Take that up predominantly and just kind of take those cells and mix them in a dish. The outer cells will go to the outside and the fibroblasts will go inside. They, they're programmed. They, they know where they should be in a tissue. To some extent, tissues self-assemble themselves. It helps us along because we don't know how they do it. So some of this uh, hurting, the, the, the cells kind of do it themselves to a certain extent, mm -hmm. if, if you know kind of what they're doing. If we start them off in the right direction uh, and make a, a, um, uh, a conducive, uh, sort of an educational, instructive environment for them, they can go off. They have, they have a lot of information built into them. And, and so uh, the cells do things we, we still don't entirely understand but if we start them in the right direction, the, the evolutionary program that's built into these cells will take over, and, and they want to make the tissues. Wow, wow. Okay, so this brings up a very important question to me. We still don't understand the motive force behind the creation of a fetus and its many intricate layers. It happens, but we don't know how or what the motive force behind it is. It's not the cells. It's not the cytokines exactly, and it's not... Of course, the DNA doing this—it's uh, something else that's uh, that's that's at work here. Do you think we'll ever be able to find out what this is, or will it be a uh, mystery to us? Well, the, the field is called developmental biology. It's kind of critical to what we want to do, and people keep on learning more and more about it. Uh, you know, the, they do work with uh, very simple uh, creatures like zebrafish uh, or uh, worms, uh, flatworms. Uh, and, and uh, watch this development going from just this one or two cells to a, a complete functional organism. And uh, they, they find, of course, you have a single cell, maybe it's fertilized by an egg, the, the cell doubles and quadruples, and then uh, you have eight of them there, and then they form uh, a, a globe. One of the most important things is when it, the, it starts spherically symmetrical. It's the same in all directions. And all of a sudden, it, it, a piece branches off, and you get uh, a thickening that uh, ultimately will be uh, kind of the, you know, the shape of the organism. You can watch the whole thing develop from there. But at each stage, you can watch the chemicals. People learn about the chemicals and proteins. It, it's so simple. You just have four or eight or 12 or 16 cells. So simple, but uh, yet there are thousands of proteins in the cells. Uh, and the proteins are arranged in, in organelles, and then the cells give off signals. The cells give off soluble chemicals that talk to other cells. And, uh, but, but this idea of how the cells polarize themselves, how they decide, it seems like they should want to grow in a, in a spherical mass, and then all of a sudden they say, let's take off and make the elongated shape that is the shape of an embryo. And that's wow. really, really remarkable to, so to watch. So we, we still don't understand it, but we're learning a lot. So it sounds like that, uh, from what you're saying, that, that this is not something that will remain a mystery forever, that there's, that this can be understood. There's a process here that can be broken down and, and, and to pieces like we like to do here as, as scientists, is, is break it down to pieces so that we understand the complete whole uh, by putting the pieces together. So maybe someday we'll be able to understand exactly how, how this sort of process developed and we can learn from it to use to regenerate our own bodies later. Yeah, you know, I think looking back at people like Linus Pauling and Watson and Crick, uh, th these are the people that, that 
really led to a, uh, an area we, we call reductionist biology, which, which says let's look at each of the components and then start fitting them back together again and make it making the whole. And so, yes, there are many parts, but we're learning the two things we have to learn is, is what they are and what they do, but more importantly, how they talk to each other in complex networks. And that's something that's called systems biology. Wow, the, the motive force. That would be like the holy grail of, uh, of biology. Uh, do we have any questions from the audience, Darren? Not at this time. They just are okay. very um, excited. I mean, this is a, obviously a treat to have Dr. Ratner on the show. So Pro Probably um, stunned in, in, in quietness, and I don't blame <laughs> them. Uh, fortunately, I have some questions I wrote Go out in advance. <laughs> um, well, here's a question right here. Uh, that I, I read a quote here that says, The exploration into bioengineering possibilities creates unique challenges and raises fascinating ethical questions. Now, for me, using stem cell tissues from um, uh, babies that are not going to live in other words, aborted fetuses, is not a problem for me because I don't see an ethical problem. Uh, uh, be, it would be a waste not to use the tissue for uh, helping people out if it's if it's not going to be used. Now, I know that there are people out there that would disagree with me, and that's fine. Uh, but uh, that's part of is that part of the ethical uh, issues we have here? Yeah, it it certainly is um, uh, part of the ethical issues. Yes, the the whole stem cell question. Um, and uh, I, too, believe that uh, uh, these leftover or cells just about to be disposed of down the toilet bowl could be used, can be readily used to help save lives, improve the quality of life, maybe someday heal a spinal cord that's severed or, or fix a heart. So, but, yes, I, I, I also agree there are people out there that, that have beliefs that uh, find this, uh, th this position inconsistent. So we have this amazing new development called yeah. induced pluripotent stem cells that say that we may be able to take the cells from our skin, sometimes uh, blood cells, and get them to revert back in time to these uh, induced pluripotent to, to uh, stem cells. How's that done exactly? How do you tell your, uh, you know, an, an adult cell say, yeah, you kind of look like you're about three years old. Uh, you give them a lollipop and uh, pat them on the head or something? Or well, this, this actually surprised people at, at how relatively easy it is. Now, that that's not to um, d diminish the genius of the person who thought to do this, because nobody <laughs> else did. Uh, Dr. Yamanaka is the, the man in Japan who, who came up with this idea. But the um, uh, what they do is, is introduce into the cell, they use actually viruses to introduce into the cell four genes uh, that are commonly found in these stem cells. Uh, they're called upregulated genes, they're functional genes. The stem cells have different genes that are functional or upregulated than adult cells. Wow. And they just, <laughs> they, use, they use viruses to bring them in. Because they use viruses, it makes it very tricky to say how we're gonna use this in uh, in humans, uh, people are always worried about putting viruses into your body. Yeah. Uh, but people are working out other mechanisms. They're learning about certain small molecules that, that sort of seem to induce the same thing. And there's so many people working on it now that I am totally convinced that we'll have a really good way to make these stem cells these uh, from your adult cells. And, and then we will have a, um, uh, a plastic, uh, uh, well, plastic's a uh, complicated word, but but a, um, a type of uh, 
very flexible construction material that we can drive to make any cell and organ in the body. So it's, it, it, it could be, a, 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 in, in fact, I, I think we're, we are seeing the, the, the very tip of, of a revolution. Again, part of this thing that's going to change medicine from this palliative mode to a, a regenerative, restorative healing mode. And these yeah. stem cells are, are going to be a major player in it. Okay. Well, all right. That, that brings up another question here. Um, I'm sure you've encountered certain myths that people have come up and they've, they've, uh, they've said, well, Dr. Ratner, what about uh, the fact that stem cells could take you over and turn you into a, 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 a zombie or, a, or a, turn you into a saber-toothed tiger or something? Like that? What kind of myths are floating around out there? What have, what have you heard that uh, sounds particularly false that you could debunk right now? Well, the, 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 the biggest problem in stem cells is you can go to clinics in Asia that claim to do all this sort of reparative uh, function, uh, re reparative uh, uh, medicine with stem cells, and, and none of it is proven. And it has led to some, some tumors, some cancerous tumors. Oh There's a type of, uh, of tumor. Remember, this, this stem cell can make any kind of cell, and it wants to grow wants to proliferate and there have been uh, some concerns so um, what we're most concerned about is to ensure that development happens and you know we, we have a pretty good process in the United States some people say maybe even too good for protecting the the citizens of our country from uh, uh, inappropriate medicine and, and we we test these things very carefully first on animals then we do very small trials on, on very small numbers of humans and then expand the trial expanded to a large-scale trial where they can be sure statistically that this is safe and effective. And once they have that, then it will go out into the world. And even then, we do what's called post-market surveillance. We watch the procedure uh, uh, in large population groups to ensure problems don't crop up. So we, we have this safety mechanism built in. Uh, none of that exists now uh, in many of these clinics in Asia although I do hear some of them are being shut down. Oh, boy. And, and yeah. so that's, that's probably the biggest problem I have with, with the stem cells. I, I don't know about, um, uh, I, I, I think we will learn to use them and learn to use them correctly, but it will, we are in the learning phase. It's not, re not ready for prime time just this second. Okay, uh, well, uh, any more, any questions, Darren? I, I no, we're great. I think, uh, I mean, that was that's awesome. We have uh, about 15 minutes left. If you guys want to okay. chat about anything. Well, now, why don't we start talking about the future possible applications of this? Um, uh, sometimes I like to delve into possible the future. Uh, once we get more advanced on this, here's a question I, I, I thought of last night. Um, I was up kind of late trying to work on this. Um, well, that, that's a good question I, right now. Do you think it's possible that we could use uh, skin cell uh, regeneration or something to overcome the ability of the need to sleep, for instance? Do you think it's possible that we could uh, regenerate ourselves to where we would uh, say, well, you know, I stayed up all night for the last few nights, but thanks to these regenerative tissues, uh, I don't have to worry about sleep. Is that still going to be a necessary thing for people in the future? Or will we be able to overcome the mm -hmm. need for sleep or things like that? You know, no, nobody knows why we sleep. They, they don't have a clue yeah. about why we sleep and why we need sleep. Uh, mystery. So <laughs> uh, it's, it, it is a great mystery. And, um, you know, I think 
once, and there are researchers studying sleep, I think once we learn why we need sleep and exactly what sleep is and what it does, maybe maybe we can learn to bypass that. Let, let me give you an interest. Somebody just today, I gave a, a, another <laughs> lecture today, and, and somebody asked a very interesting question. They asked, um, uh, apparently they, they had uh, some drug addiction problems in their family. And one of the, the issues there, or one of the reasons why people take these drugs, is their brain isn't producing enough L-DOPA oh. that they need. And so they asked me, can we make an implant that might generate L-DOPA in the brain and get rid of this need for addiction? And uh, so this is uh, immensely possible. People are working on this. People are working on, on, on these kind of cellular implants that might address Alzheimer's disease and other other sorts of diseases in the brain. So maybe there might be one, once we understand what sleep is, there might be one that would address sleep in that way too. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, science fiction authors uh, has written a lot of story about the sleepless. Uh, she's a, I can't think of her name right now. I think it's Nancy Kress, but I'm not hmm. absolutely sure. Well, here's another uh, question now. I uh, like sleep. <laughs> I do too, and I'm definitely going to get a lot tonight. Uh, <laughs> um Will immortality be the result of systematic perfection or piecemeal replacement on a continuous basis? Uh, in other words, regeneration versus replacement parts. And which would you prefer it to be and which do you think is more likely uh, on the short term and on the long term basis? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, one of the things I think about, um, if you visit Japan, uh, they will take you to a wooden temple, you know, often many story pagoda-like temples, uh, elegant structures, and these will be, um, you know, uh, uh, fabulous uh, woodwork, wood made all out of wood, made without a single nail in them, all fitted together wood parts, and they'll say this is 800 years old, and you're kind of looking at it and thinking and say, well, you know, wood really doesn't last 800 years in the environment. Uh, and, and they'll tell you, well, you know, as parts break down, we just replace them with absolutely identical parts of new parts. And, and as far as, uh, as the people that, that respect these Japanese shrines and, and, and temples, they feel they are the same temple, although it's 800 years. Now, the whole thing may have been replaced 10 times in that 800 years, but each part is identical. That's what we do. We replace ourselves every seven years. Well, uh, and maybe uh, in the future, you know, uh, uh, again, nobody really knows what, what true longevity is, what long life is, what immortality is. But maybe if we just keep on replacing parts, we would stay young forever as long as we always had fresh new parts. So, um, you know, it's one thing you can daydream about. We don't have uh, information yet on that. Of course, if you once you've lived about a million years next to do wouldn't life tend to get kind of boring i mean you wouldn't want to end it you'd be afraid w to, wouldn't perhaps. get boring for me from a carl sagan perspective uh, mm -hmm. i watched a real good video the other day and talking <laughs> about the future and uh, we were discussing a little bit about star trek so i'd like to see what happens in the next 400 500 years yeah, if possible be nice Ro robert heinlein actually in one of his books talked about um uh he described people that were you know, uh, immortality or, or continuing life, let's not call it immortality, was no problem. When people started getting to about 700 years old, they found there was, there was an issue, a problem. They uh, lost interest yeah. in continuing to live. Yeah. Uh, 700 is a pretty good run. It, it so. is. I mean, after a, a million years, 
God, what could you possibly do new? It could get really old again. And you'd be visited by your great 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 grandchildren, and you'd be telling them, Oh, when are you gonna give me some great 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 grandchildren? Have you found a girl yet? Well, that would be one of the fun things to do, I guess, is watching your progenity grow everywhere. But oh, okay. Uh, that's that's. I wanted to ask a more technical question. Now, I'm, I'm interested in the biomaterial scaffolding that uh, that was being discussed. Now, this is a kind of uh, thing that I believe was made of carbon nanotubes. Uh, if I understand, maybe I misread this, but uh, it was like if they're going to construct a heart, they they first they construct the outline of scaffolding made of little tiny nanotubes, and then they place the cells and the and, and stuff around it, the, in other words, to create the shape of the heart, and therefore then in, in, uh, in, infuse it with the the uh, herding of the cells and lymph uh, nodes and stuff uh, around the heart. Uh, so so there, there, there are some people using nanotubes, but that's not the most common at all. In fact, it's very, uh, very unusual, very specialized. Uh, you know, people are thinking about it. The, ah. the material that I showed there that we're putting into so many sites in the body and getting healing and regeneration is, is pretty similar to soft contact lens material. Oh, it's yeah. called a hydrogel. Is it, is it safer for the body than the nanotubes? Well, you know, again, we've had 60 years of safe use uh, of this type of material, both in the eye, of course, for contact lenses, but, oh. but then many uh, implant applications, too. Um, but it's just one of many different types of materials people use. And, and then we're actually taking that contact lens material and we're putting in nanoparticulate, nanoparticles uh, of hydroxyapatite, which is the mineral phase of the bone. And so when we put it into bone, this stuff knows it's supposed to make bone and, and does it very well. So we are using some nanotechnology here. But uh, um, uh, the the scale of this is actually microns, which is way bigger than nanotechnology. Again, roughly the scale of human hairs in size and diameter. Okay, great. Now, do we have any questions yet from the audience, uh, uh, Darren? No. Again, I mean, there's just a lot. There's oh, activity. There's, there's activity in the chat room, but I mean, they're just uh, they're just, just really talking, huh? talking and fascinated with what. This what is your the show opportunity to talk an eminent bioengineer about the future. That ask a question. Well, here. All right. Well, well we do have a minute. Can I, can I talk about some things sure. I'm interested in here? Well, yeah. uh, oh, well, do you want me to like broach a little science fiction here? Or well, yeah, exactly. Okay, you well, know? what's the possibility of uh, I maybe saying, you know what, I'd like to have some devil horns in my head. Do you think I could bioengineer a few of those or maybe some bird wings on my back or something? Or well, maybe bat wings might be more practical. Since they would uh, have my own skin and yeah. stuff, is that possible? So th I do this that? is sort of one of the big ethical uh, questions. Oh boy! <laughs> is, is you know w what? What if people could uh, modify their body to any uh, desired uh, um, I ideal of beauty or, or uh, uh, whatever reason they well, want to change it? it could have, have anything. You could have a, you know an extra limb, uh, oh. have a, a hole in a strange place. Uh, Whatever you uh, might envision could, in principle, happen. And how will we as a society deal with people who have the flexibility uh, to change themselves into something uh, potentially well, completely different? let's see. Naturally, we'd pass some laws against it, uh, jail people for doing it, and then prosecute people for doing it, and then drive them underground where they'd do it anyway. 
and thus cause a lot of havoc. And then eventually we'd have to say, okay, we're tired of enforcing this. It's costing us too much money to jail tons of people with bat wings and devil horns and uh, whatever else they have growing out and humongous penises. So uh, we would just have to allow it to, to happen. I, I assume that, that, that uh, this could be the future that human, human beings themselves could start looking very yeah. different from the way they look now. You know, in the in the Star Wars movie, one of those Star Wars movies, there was a bar scene oh, yeah. where uh, <laughs> maybe Luke Skywalker came into the bar, and there was every bizarre, imaginable uh, alien creature, and 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 someday we may humans we may become them. I've read science fiction stories where the fact that we could bioengineer ourselves to live on a planet like Venus or or something to be able to breathe methane or something that's that's not Arctic gills. That sort of thing, or to, to live where it's very, very cold by bioengineering us, it, that could be a possibility in the future. Maybe bioengineer ourselves to just survive in, in dead space, but that would maybe take some, a lot of effort. Yeah, a lot, a lot of effort. I, I honestly think that we will um, both uh, engineer ourselves to uh, maybe live on the planet Mars at some point, yeah, in that's not too far future, yeah. and at the same time engineer the environment of the planet Mars to make it more hospitable to, uh, to human life. Both those yeah. uh, events will happen. Wow. Martian, just like me. <laughs> that's a very, very interesting concept. Darren, how much time do we have left? We've got about four or five minutes. Four or five. Oh, good. Well, uh, I, yeah. you know, I so was afraid to approach the science fiction subject with you because I thought maybe it would mean I wasn't taking the, the subject seriously, but you probably thought about this sort of stuff a lot. Well, uh, it, you know, it helps you um, think about what might be. I guess that's everything we're doing is think well, about what, what might, what we don't have today and what might be. Let, let me give you one other yeah. thing. I'd, I'd like yeah. to mention it while Please we're doing it. One of the other possibilities for tissue engineering is food production. I mean, what is meat? Is yeah. muscle. People are relatively e appalled at what we do to animals, and, and some people are, are violently against it. But, but uh, what if we could uh, tissue engineer a filet mignon? It's muscle. It's just a piece Why of muscle. Not? Why yeah. not? Um, From these yeah. cells. Make me some filet mignon, please. Order it now. <laughs> I love some. Well, we could do that in a Petri dish. And yeah. that no yeah. animals whacked on the head, nothing or, like or, that. Or in a factory. No animals are involved. And, and, and it could be tuned to you know yeah. exact tastes and needs you need. Uh, that could well happen. That could be a, another spinoff. So, you know, we, ha we have uh, cosmetic. We have um, uh, tissue repair and replacement. Yeah. We have meat production. Uh, also, things like drug testing. There could be little living instead of testing on animals. Why not uh, have uh, little uh, living constructs in a dish of, of, of liver or heart and test the drugs that, on that? That could be done pretty easily. These things like growing meat in a dish or something is something that could be done on a massive scale probably within the next 10 to 20 years without too much trouble. We wouldn't have to chop down the Amazon forest to, to, to do it then, to, to have hamburgers. And then, of course, when the hamburgers rotted out our livers, bam, pop up a replacement and... Woohoo! Uh, the future. Uh, I have I have sort of a quick question. Sure. My my question is for Dr. Ratner. Um, what do you see in the in the in the in the way of um, sort of underground testing or underground you know of, of the subject you were just talking about uh, going on out there in the world? Have there been any obviously unpublished reports, but um, people that are maybe doing this privately, privately financed, that are trying to develop these technologies without the world knowing they're developing these technologies and then we'll release them out to the world somehow or some way um, 
you know that, that usually science is sometimes uh, you know what's being done behind the scenes is much more advanced than what's being done in front of the scenes do you have you ever heard of anything like that or yeah. seen so that I, you know, I think I mentioned some of these did clinics you? in Asia Asia that, yeah that, you, uh, you know where this is indeed people are attempting to develop this and, and we don't know what's happening and it's not being subject to um, mm -hmm. the the critical review we call a peer review of our scientists well we uh, we criticize each other we we uh, challenge each other would be a better word than criticize we challenge each other to uh, to prove what we're doing and uh, if that doesn't go on anything can can happen and uh, you never know if you're gonna get something that'll really work or not that that's what we aim for is something that uh, you know, we, we use right from the beginning the word engineering, and en engineers like the bridges to stay up and the skyscrapers to stay up and the automobiles to function, and we like our tissues to function well, too. Awesome. Hearts to beat and the brains to think. Thank you for answering that. All right, well, now here's a dark question for the future. How much, how much could this be abused by the makers of war to win battles in the future and things like this? So we could obviously make super soldiers with bigger hearts and more muscle, uh, do you think it's possible we could, uh, how much abuse could be done? We can create yeah. diseases to wipe out mass populations, but what, what could be done with what you're doing right now? How could it be abused, do you think? Well, I mean, there, there are so many ways. You know, uh, there's um, illustration. You can probably find it on the web someplace if you look for it, of, of what people call a, a, um, uh, a robotic or computer-controlled rat and, and what it envisions is uh, putting electrodes in the brain of the rat and controlling the rat with a joystick and, the, uh, and in this image on the web oh they have boy. machine guns on this rat that you might send into enemy territory but uh, you know the thing of enhancing soldiers making super soldiers is terminator uh, rats yeah yeah terminator <laughs> oh boy terminator rats uh, oh boy but uh, um, there was a book uh, again a very I think a very important book. Uh, it was called Cyborg. It was written by a man named Martin Caden. Martin Caden wrote 150 books in his life, but this book Cyborg became the basis for the Six Million Dollar Man TV show. And uh, so you had this aviator who gets into this this crash of a military plane, taken to a secret base, and he's reconstructed by in some secret military lab. And, and, and the interesting thing is that he, the parts they reconstruct him with are not only replacements for original, they're much better, they're much stronger, they're much faster. And, uh, you know, as we get to the place where we can start envisioning doing this, well, people want to take your, your, your silly little arm with a silly little bicep and get some super arm put on. Uh, you know, these yeah. are incredible ethical issues, but the possibility to do this may may exist. That's Why right. go to the gym when you can, can, can have big <laughs> biceps today? Now, that'd be a real literal mm. arms race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much time do we have left, Darren? Oh, we're just about to finish up here, Greg. Okay, well, I... If, about 30 uh, seconds. Okay, well, that, that's a good way to end the show with a, a joke about an arms race, I guess. I had one last question. I doubt you can answer it in 30, question, 30 seconds, but here we go. Uh, blood compatibility is still a problem in our age of wonders. What do you what do you think the answer might be eventually to blood compatibility? Uh, mine's B negative, which kind of fits my personality a little bit. But what do you think? Well, the, the perfect blood compatible surface is the living lining of your blood vessels. It's called endothelial cells, 
and they line every blood vessel in your body, and your blood never clots within your body. And uh, so we're, we're actually, it's you know, very close to tissue engineering, learning how to, how to use and engineer these things to, um, uh, to make surfaces and medical devices that exist nicely in the blood and don't, don't clot. O almost any synthetic will induce that's, that's blood clotting. That's what you're clotting. using to do the, oh, wow, that's yeah. interesting. Well, I hadn't thought of that. That seems uh, obvious, but, no. well, wow. So uh, blood compatibility, I was thinking more in the, in, in the terms of, um, uh, well, you know, uh, different people with different types of blood. Uh, oh, yeah. I, okay. Uh, it's a, a different um, different topic. I, I, I was thinking in terms of medical devices and but replacements. Well, that's but, a good uh, answer, yeah, though. I, yeah. I did like that. But we're almost out of time, so maybe we can save that question for some time in the future. It's good, not, a, not a very important one. Darren, uh, I guess we're pretty much out, so we can go ahead and... Uh, all Once right. again, this has been a very great show. It's very a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Ratner. I'd hope someday to have you on again someday in the future if you ever have any uh, important um, um, uh, topic to, to cover. Uh, if you want to come on the show, you're very much more than welcome. Um, good night, everyone. This has been the Multiversal News. I hope you have a pleasant tomorrow. Keep dreaming. And uh, if you have any problem with that, perhaps maybe we can give you a new brain in the future to help you dream better. All right, that'll be it. Thank you and good night.
I'm attorney Alexander Ransom. Have you been charged with a DUI or face any other criminal charges? If you're in trouble with the law, you need a trial attorney who's aggressive, experienced, and effective. Call today for a free consultation, the law offices of Alexander Ransom. I look forward to serving you and getting your criminal charges reduced or dismissed. Call today. The law offices of Alexander Ransom. Call today. appeal at an appealing price. Whether you want traditional, carriage house, custom wood, or even glass garage doors, we have an option that's right for you. Make the right decision. Call Precision. Problem solved. 